Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Sydney Williams. She is a survivor who also has a wonderful skill at storytelling, which you're going to experience with me in this episode today. I went through a full range of all of the emotions listening to her story and her recovery and especially felt a tremendous amount of inspiration as well as just wonder, awe, and comfort in all that she has put together as part of her recovery journey. Sydney took a unique path, um, one that was just very intuitively guided for her, that she connected to her own sense of knowing and her own sense of herself and did the next right thing or the next indicated thing that really worked for her and found her healing through that. What I also think is really beautiful is just like many survivors, this inspired her to offer this back to other people that may also benefit from this this type of journey. And so she developed her program called and community called Hiking My Feelings and specifically has a, a program within that community called Blaze Your Own Trail to Self-Love. And this really helps people connect with their own intuitive wisdom, do a lot of self-reflection and get back out into nature and use the the healing power that is there for them. What I think is also really lovely is that she also offered a discount code for people listening to Initiated Survivor, which I'm happy to offer to people because I think it's great when we can offer resources to the community so that anyone and everyone can weave into this network of healing and recovery and connect to whatever it is that is going to help them along their journey. Uh, That discount code is SURVIVOR. You can use it at checkout. All of the links are in the show notes. That code is going to save you $44 on registering for the Blaze Your Own Trail to Self-Love program. You're going to hear Sydney describe this program more throughout the episode as she also tells more and more of her story and how it shaped that program. So please join me in welcoming Sydney. Take this journey with us together as we hear all about her recovery story. Welcome, Sydney. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I know you have some interesting insights to offer, but also something more to offer, some resources to offer our listeners today. So I'm excited to dig into that. Yay. Yay. So why don't you share with us a little bit about yourself and and tell us your story? Wow. Um, How long you got? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm Sydney Williams. Um, Most currently, I guess we all introduce ourselves by what we do. Uh, so I'm the author and founder of an organization called Hiking My Feelings. My book is also um, in- influenced by the same title. So Hiking My Feelings, Stepping Into the Healing Power of Nature is my book. Um, and our organization is on a mission to help people heal through nature and nature-based activities. So 
um, my story, I haven't always been outdoorsy. I grew up in Kansas where being outdoorsy was like riding my bike and going to the community pool. So um, I kind of started on this journey when I moved to California 10 years ago, but for the sake of talking to you about being an initiated survivor, um, that chapter of my story happened about 16 years ago. Um, I had just left the University of Kansas. I moved to Florida with my family over spring break of my sophomore year and uh, never went back to Kansas. I got there and it was 70 degrees and sunny and back home it was still freezing. So I called the dean's office at University of Kansas. I was like, I'm dropping my classes, send me a bill, whatever you got to do. I'm, I'm not coming back. Um, and I took a year off once we moved to Florida to get in-state tuition so I wouldn't have to pay out-of-state tuition rates. Um, and also just to kind of recalibrate, like I had grown up in Kansas my whole life. We had just moved to Florida where it's absolutely stunning. Um, so I worked at Walt Disney World for a bit. I was a costume character in parades and shows. Um, so I like to say I was friends with Chip and Dale and Yellow Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh himself. Uh, the penguins from Mary Poppins. I had lots of friends that were furry and fun. Um, and then I, I started working at a restaurant um, outside of the park in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. And I made more in one shift in tips than I made in an entire week dressed up as a costume character. So I was like, servant tables is the way to go. This is a great way to bank some money before I go back to school. This is something that'll work with my schedule once I'm in school. So I was living the dream. I was, you know, slinging drinks and delicious food outside of Walt Disney World, meeting all kinds of people on the vacation of a lifetime. And I learned about the hospitality industry and how when you work in food service and bartending, like you drink a lot and I, I drank a lot and I was social and young and excited. And, um, I went out one night and my friends, um, we were having a celebration of some sort at the local bar that we went to after our shifts and came home. I was going to drive home, but thankfully my friend was like, do not do that. Like stay with me, stay on my couch. Um, so I did that. And one of the guys I worked with, um, came back to the apartment and that night he tried to initiate some stuff and I was like, not interested. No, thank you. Uh, I asked my friend if she had any kind of protection available. Cause I didn't like, I wasn't looking to hook up that night. And I was like, I asked her, like, it was so weird. Like in that phase of my life, I was so worried about saying no and what that meant about me as like mm. the not fun lady. Um, so like, I, I like set myself up, like I did my due diligence to like, make sure that he knew that I exhausted all my options before saying no. So like, I remember peeking my head in my friend's room and I was like, do you have any condoms? And she's like, nope, don't have any. I was like, cool, cool. So no, we can't bang. Like not interested. Not that like, I didn't know that it was enough for me to just say no. Like I had mm -hmm. to have shown that I did my homework about why I had to say no, let alone that no is a full sentence. Um, so I went to sleep that night, no issues. Um, but I woke up and I was being assaulted and that's how my life completely changed in the blink of an eye one morning on a couch. Mm -hmm. Um, and for anybody that's listening, that's watched 13 reasons why. Uh, I believe it's season two, episode seven. I might have that mixed up. There's a there's a scene that was basically an exact depiction of my assault. And I ran out of the room screaming, just like it. I knew that that's how it happened. I hadn't seen it on TV before. And it was just really 
earth shattering, but that's, that's fast forwarding a lot. So in the immediate aftermath of like the worst day of my life, I didn't tell anybody. Um, I didn't go to the hospital. I didn't tell my friend whose house it happened at. I didn't tell my parents when I got home. I didn't tell any of my friends. I just swore that I'd take that incident with me to the grave. First, I thought that I deserved it because I was drinking the night before. And yeah, I was looking pretty darn cute. Like we were celebrating. Um, and I internalized all of it and I slut shamed myself into silence and I didn't tell anybody for 11 years. And the first person I told about my assault, um, was my husband. And at that point in time, we had been together for seven years and married for five. And we were, it was just, I, my husband's amazing. Like he's, he's the most supportive dude on the planet. Um, there's nothing that I've never told him except for this. Um, but I hadn't told anybody and I thought I'd take this story to the grave with me, but we were sitting there on the couch watching the bachelor sometime in 2017 before me too. Cause I remember like, I told my husband, then me too happened. And then I was like, this is my new path in life. But I was, uh, sitting there watching the bachelor and one of the women, like all the girls were on the couch as they do in the mansion. And one of the women was talking, like dancing around something that happened to her that she was ashamed about, that she never told anybody about. And like being a survivor, I knew what she was talking about because I've had those same conversations in my head. And I was just like, oh, like she's talking about assault and how she didn't tell anybody and why she was so ashamed. Mm-hmm. And my husband paused the show and he was like, Sydney, if there's anything like this that you ever want to share with me, just know like I, I can take it and I got you. And I was like, okay. Wonderful. Yeah. And in the moment I was like, yeah, no, like, it's fine. Let's keep watching inside. I'm like, oh oh my God, I didn't even like, I, there was no part of me that was ready to see this on this show to have my husband offer support without me prompting it or that I would ever consider letting the story come across my lips and like out loud for real. So two weeks later, uh, we were sitting on the couch. I was like, Hey, remember when we were watching the bachelor and you know, the chick was talking about the stuff and you said, I could tell you, I got a story and I told him, And it was like, in, as soon as like, I just started talking about it. And as soon as I did, like, it just felt like I just lost like a hundred (laughs) pounds, like the weight of carrying that by myself for so long was just so, so heavy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until like me too, where I started to understand, like, that was the first moment. And for me, like, I hadn't ever met anybody and because I hadn't told anybody, like, of course I'm not meeting people that have been through this, but I had never met somebody who had been through what I'd been through and had the language to describe it. And in that moment on that episode of the bachelor that season with that one particular contestant, that was the first time where I was like, Oh, Oh, that. So what happened to me wasn't my fault. And I didn't ask for it. Okay. Then maybe it's safe enough to talk about. Cause when it was my problem and I had blamed myself for it, I was like, well, if I don't tell anybody, then nobody will know and nobody will think less of me. But then like when mm-hmm. she flipped the script like that and she was like, this happened to me and it's bullshit. I was like, yeah, it it is. And for like 11 years, I've been thinking that like this, this sucks and I don't like it. Like, how do I start to talk about it? And then, then it was just like at the forefront of my mind, more than just like avoiding flashbacks, more than just like trying to understand why my physical body is just like erupting in mental and physical disease and not understanding what was causing it. It was just like this, like opening, like the little tiniest open of the door. And I like just put my toe through, but it was such a big moment. And I had no idea 
that watching The Bachelor would change my life in such profound ways because I feel like that's a show we all kind of hate watch, right? Like, I don't think anybody mm-hmm. actually likes watching it. Um, and I was just like, wow, like, who'd have thunk watching The Bachelor? I, you know, find my, find my life's purpose. It's so, it's so silly. But I mean, like, that was a huge, huge moment for me and in, in my journey. So that's like the what happened. How did you get around to talking about it? version of the story and the healing part is much longer. <laughs> it usually is for sure. I, I love this moment that you had where your husband just like pauses the show and looks at you and like, he inherently knows, like, I need to be offering support and, you know, whether or not, because he knew this was something that happened to you innately, but more just like that was something that was in alignment with who he is and a way that he wanted to show love to you is so wonderful. Yeah. And I, I've been doing like, I'm, I'm new to the, to the sexual assault survivor game, as it were, I'm a new member of the club. Like I've been in the club for a while, but like my awareness of my membership um, is still pretty new, but I think like between him just pausing and being like, Hey, if you need anything, let me know. And how I thought it would be received and why I was quiet for so long. Like if I had known that that kind of support was available to me, um, my journey would look very different, mm-hmm. but it was the right person at the right place at the right time. Cause I didn't, I, I didn't tell anybody cause I wanted to protect myself, but hindsight goggles on 2020 vision, super clear. Um, looking back, if I had been met with anything less than what my husband offered me as that reaction, I probably definitely wouldn't be on this planet because, and I'll talk a little bit about like why I didn't tell my folks and what happened when I did. Um, but if I just hope that anybody listening, like if you haven't told anybody because you're scared or whatever, like you'll know when the timing's right. And I didn't know that for the first 11 years, I just felt so deeply ashamed because I hadn't done any work to process it. But when the support was available and clear, it was a no brainer for me to share. Mm. And so I, I don't punish myself anymore for not talking about it for so long, because I can see now with the hindsight that I have on the other side of like opening my mouth about it. And the journey is a forever journey. Um, But on the other side of like, just making, taking the step to talk about it it's so abundantly clear to me why I did not originally. And that was a massive, massive dose of self-protection at the time. And I give younger Sydney so much gratitude for knowing that she wasn't safe to share it until she was. I'm, I'm so glad that you're saying that because I think that as survivors, just with the inherent shame with what happened, we have a tendency to look at everything that happens with that lens of like everything that we're doing around our recovery, you know, whether we tell people, whether we don't, you know, and how we, how we recover, what we do to take care of ourselves, we judge all of it. And we look at all of it as being the wrong decision. And it becomes an an important part of the healing process to get to a place of being able to reflect on all of those things as something that was a protective mechanism as something that was innately wise to do. And that, you know, and even, you know, looking at that uh, for me, it was like with this kind of like 
admiration and wonderment of like, oh my gosh, like how am I so automatically so wise to be able to handle all of this really complex stuff without even consciously thinking about it? And so I appreciate that you're really sharing that too, because I think a lot of people, you know, we have a lot of scripts of how we're supposed to be survivors, often imposed by rape culture, but you know, that being able to say like, I, I did it my way. And actually that was incredibly important that I did. I think that's such a valuable message to share with everyone. Yeah. And I think especially like, and love it or hate it, sexual assault being a topic that is now more prevalent in American society, in our pop culture, in the media that's being created and consumed. I, I'm so thankful. Like it's, it's gross that we have to make content that we even have to have this podcast. Like, frankly, I'd rather mm-hmm. not ever know you. Like you're a wonderful <laughs> woman, Kelsey, but like the, the reason we're connected is so abhorrent yeah. that it's, and it's so broken and it's so indicative of how troubled our society is. But at the same time, it's so beautiful. Like I, if there wasn't a, a single gal on the bachelor in 2017, like <laughs> I wouldn't be telling the story the way I'm telling it. I might not be telling it at all still. And I think that there's so much awareness, like whether, whether it's great or not, I know um, there was a, a, like a documentary or a short series, like a mockumentary um, that Rain partnered with Netflix on. And I can't remember the name of it to save my life, but it talked about this woman who experienced sexual assault and the re-traumatization of her experience reporting the assault. And like so many people are like, well, you got to report it. You got to get that DNA on mm-hmm. file. You got to make sure that this dude doesn't do this to more women. And it's like, at what expense though? Like I, I used mm-hmm. to like give myself so much crap for, for not reporting. Like I'm an, in like a, a irresponsible member of society. Cause I didn't report my assault, but like, if I had reported it and been through a fraction of what the stories that I've heard about women that have reported that have been re-traumatized by the process. Like if I had known that I wouldn't have given myself an ounce of grief because look at what's happening. Like justice, the justice system is not centering survivors. It's centering protecting the aggressor. Like, and Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not helpful to anybody's healing journey. Like I, I would be happy to report to a system that can actually do something about it. But until then, like, it's not worth my sanity and frankly, my life to put that kind of stuff on the line. And by now so much time has passed that it's just not even worth it. But like, I just, for anybody that's feeling like you got to be on some type of way. And if you've been provided like a checklist of how to heal with like actionable steps, and this is the only path, like take what works for you and leave the rest. Everything that I offer is a resource. If it, if it works for you, run with it. If it doesn't let it go, like it's not, there's not one path to do this and there's not one right way to go about it. Yeah, unless absolutely. the right way is to have compassion for yourself right. and grace for yourself. Other than that, there's no like set order of steps that we go through and everybody's process looks different, but that having that grace and that compassion, especially once you start talking about it, even if the conversation is only with yourself, like for two weeks, the conversation was with myself. I saw the thing on bachelor. I talked to myself, like, how am I going to tell this story? Do I just tell it? Do I like, do I have to quantify and qualify why I was drinking? Like, what stories do I need to lead up with and follow up with? Um, but ultimately, like the second that we start talking about it, we have the gift and grace of hindsight. And we can start connecting those dots, looking backwards on why we did what we did, 
And some of it's great. Some of it's not for me. Eating and drinking my feelings did not work for me. And in a way it did, because I'm still on this planet to talk about it. And that was, those were my coping mechanisms that saved my life, but they weren't beneficial for my mental or physical health. They were survival tactics, hundred percent, but not the best ones. <laughs> I, I think it's, there's such a, a, I think of it like a journey and the, the metaphor coming to my mind that I think is very, very fitting um, is I'm like, it's like a trail hiking up a mountain, which I know we're going to get to very shortly about why, but in the sense that like, yeah, like survival tools, they absolutely help us, but there comes a point when they're no longer necessary. And in fact, continuing to use survival skills when we're not needing to survive can interfere with um, actual recovery and healing. You know, like if we're doing things to try to just, you know, bury our feelings when we're, we're needing that to survive, that's very important to do whatever it takes. But when we're trying to process our feelings, like we need those feelings to come up. Yes. But yeah, I think something, um, something that you, you talked a little bit about was also in your story, the sense of like, you had to do everything you could to like validate your no. And I think it, you know, that just, that hit me in the chest because of like that pressure still really exists to this day, which is why we have so many exhaustive conversations about consent. And unfortunately that's because people seem to argue about consent where it's like, you know, (laughs) why, why are we debating whether or not someone gets to say no in this way, <laughs> like, right. they, you know, it's, it's, it's a no, it's a no, if it's not a yes, it's, it's a no. And all of those other things. And, and, and especially because that's something that, you know, it's, it's part and parcel to this conversation that, you know, sexual violence and sexual assault doesn't look one way. Um, our recovery journeys don't look one way and consent is absolutely a huge part of the work that we do, even as survivors, to continue to make changes. What, you know, when you're, when you look back on, on that moment with the hindsight goggles, you know, what stands out to you about this moment of the the issue around consent that came up there? I did, man. Well, I mean, like, so I grew up in a house where physical abuse was not a thing, but emotional and verbal, absolutely. Love was withheld as a punishment. Um, mm. And my father was verbally explosive. Like we all walked around on eggshells to see now my hindsight goggles. Uh, my father's got pain that he's never dealt with ever. And I can trace back memories going way back to when I was itty bitty of just me, my mom and my sister walking around on eggshells. So we wouldn't trigger my dad to explode and be angry and upset. And it was never really like at us, but it was always like, he'd be working and he'd say something. He'd like freak out. So when I was younger, like knowing that that was the environment that I grew up in also in a house where good grades were expected and not allowed to not exist. If I messed up, I had to have a story. Mm. And when I got in trouble, if I was getting punished, I better have a, a, a story that backed up what I did. And so I think to some extent, watching that happen, knowing that was like, cause that's just how, like, I would, I would do stuff. I, it would either be good or bad. And then I'd have to explain it either way. Like I, I would explain it to, to get their validation. If it was good, I was like, look at all the great things I'm doing. Love me, love me. And then I'd explain it away. If I, if I made a mistake and it's like, 
when you're little, like look around, like we're learning how to be human. Like there's there, we need a lot more grace for kids, but I grew up in an, in an emotionally kind of turbulent space where it wasn't always like that, but when it was, it was awful. And you wanted to avoid that at all costs. So I think for me in that moment, looking back on the consent piece was like, well, if I'm going to say no, that's not his desired outcome. So I better have a story as to why that, like, it never mind. Cause like, yeah, dude worked at the restaurant. Like if I forgot an order, like, yeah, I flirted with the dude, like hook me up, man. Like, give me some French fries. I need them quick. Like these people, I forgot to put it in. You know, you sweet talk the people, do you do what you got to do to get your tables happy? So everybody gets paid. And it's like, that is not the same as me wanting to have sex with you. Like mm-hmm. me trying to do my job is not the same as saying, hi, you know what? I'd like to explore a sexual relationship. Like, no, I'm just trying to get my tables fed. Like, Mm -hmm. so I think there, I think like looking back, the biggest part of it was like, I felt like I had to tell a story that night as to why I was saying no. And then in the morning when I woke up and it was happening, I played dead because Mm -hmm. the tactic that I saw work when my dad got upset about anything was my mom just stuck her face in a book or she pretended she was taking a nap. And I was like, okay, so if I like play dead and in in that case, like, I was just like, I'm asleep. If I'm asleep, like maybe he'll stop. Or maybe I just won't remember when that was all going down. I was just like, well, take a cue from my mom. Like if you ignore it, Mm -hmm. it'll go away. And that's not helpful either. Like, I don't know what I thought would have happened if I tried to stop him or if I tried to fight back. Well, I know what I thought would have happened. I thought I'd get in trouble or I thought I'd get embarrassed or I, or, or hurt or something. Um, but it wasn't like, for me, I think the the hardest part about it was like the consent was not given. It was a hard no, but I think like the story I told myself the morning after was like, well, maybe consent expires at midnight. Like, do I need to renegotiate consent in the morning? Cause like last night was a no, but apparently this morning it's yes, even though I haven't been awake to consent. So mm-hmm. I haven't ever really, I haven't ever really reflected on that. So one, thank you for the opportunity. And two, I think that's a really great exercise to go through is like, what was, what was the consent that was given or not? And where did we learn those things that that's what needed to happen? Like, where did I learn that I couldn't just say no and ask Mm -hmm. him to leave? He wasn't really good friends with us. He just kind of showed up because we were all hammered. Like dude knew what he wanted. I told him no. And then he took it the next morning. Like Mm -hmm. how, what, uh, what movie, what show, what, household argument did I witness to where I thought that I had to explain that I didn't want to and that I couldn't fight back when it was happening? That's a good question. I'm going to journal on that later and probably cry. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the, like, even the, the connections that you made, like really point to what we like, what we understand or what we believe is happening, which is that, you know, lessons around consent are complex and start really young, like, because, this is all about relationships and how we navigate disappointing people (laughs) and especially how women navigate disappointing people and um, in the world, which is, you know, there's so much that, that so many forces that like to weigh in on how we're supposed to do that. But that, you know, when in our households growing up as children, when our brains are being 
developed, you know, in the environment that it's in, if no is not an option there, or if no is met with a lot of aggression or a lot of anger, if disappointment or negative emotions are not regulated, you know, that actually then becomes more and more of this barrier to people feeling completely free in their lives to say no to anything, but especially things that we know um, bring on a lot of negative experiences or negative feelings, which we know saying no or rejecting um, a male's advances do. Like we see this across the board, a lot of women talking about how they have to pretend they have a boyfriend or they wear fake rings out to the bars because it's so much safer to say, I have a partner than to say no. Yeah. And, um, you know, and part of that is because we have, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of misogynistic violence, just part of our culture that is in, in many ways really reinforced, as you mentioned before, with what happens in our reporting system, reinforcing and protecting perpetrators, but also this, this, uh, you know, the way that we're raised in these family systems, you know, and, and whatever the, the value or the stances behind it, you know, where people are not learning how to regulate their emotions. And so they they create so much of this difficulty around being able to be an autonomous being with agency, especially families who don't treat their children as autonomous beings with agencies, uh, with agency then, you know, kind of lead to this sense of like, I can't really say no, no is something that I have to earn or figure out in some way rather than like, it just is, you know, or like you said, there might be some rules around consent that I haven't figured out just yet. Um, and that's why this went this, this certain way, um, how quickly we, we tend to invalidate ourselves, you know, or believe that there's just some sort of, you know, custom that we're not aware of that we have to be aware of. We have to play by some sort of rules, you know, in some way, shape or form. And I think something else you're describing, you know, about the like playing dead, um, there's part of this that for many people, and I know this is true for a lot of survivors from what the research says, is the freeze response to fight, flight, or freeze um, pops up quite often for um, sexual violence because the the danger, the threat is so physically close to the body that the instinctual system is just like, you know, you might die. So I'm just shutting down and it can feel like I'm just trapped here and I don't know why I'm, I'm not moving. And especially if your consciousness is like, I could probably get this person away from me in some way. Your instinctual system is like, nope, death is too scary. It's too close. It's, it's, it's going to happen. And it can be one that's, that is really hard, you know, for us to reckon with or reconcile later when we feel, especially from a culture that puts so much responsibility on survivors to prevent, um, to prevent the assault from happening, to have adequately fought it off. And then we're supposed to prevent perpetrators from perpetrating again. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's all us. (laughs) It's all, it's all on us and (laughs) never maybe, you know, the perpetrators, parents or family or community, whatever. Um, Well, and I think there was a, there was a part we were talking about, um, how we navigate disappointing people and I'm not a parent. It's not on my list of things to do. I am happily child-free. So this isn't something that I have any experience with, but growing up in a household where, and I don't know, maybe there's a generational divide 
But I was raised in a house where my parents were like, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Cause mm-hmm. I think my parents' parents got mad and that screwed up my parents, right? Like they've got their own trauma because their parents got angry. Again, nobody knows how to talk about emotions, but here's how we right. handle it. Grandparents pissed, angry. We don't, we don't talk about emotions, but we'll demonstrate the bad ones, bad ones, air quotes for anybody listening. These aren't bad. And then my parents were like, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Well, now my whole world is centered around not disappointing, specifically my father, because he's the one that runs the show. So if I, if I manage my father's emotions and I don't disappoint him, then I get gold stars. And if that's true for the most important male relationship in my life, how the heck do I think that's going to transfer over to the other relationships in my life? Like if my mode, if my mission is to not disappoint my father, then of course I'm going to not want to disappoint the man who wants to take me to bed that night. Like the most integral relationship that I have with a male is centered around that. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's near impossible for that not to carry over to other relationships, at least once we get, until we get like aware of that tendency and then we can start to do some healing around that. Absolutely. Well, that's a nice segue into talking a little bit about your recovery process. And some of it, you know, I think from what, you know, we talked about in our messages before this, you know, that you took a very important and unique path. I think one that actually speaks to a lot of survivors um, from that, from the ones that I've spoken to definitely resonates with them. Can you you share a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So I uh, had the conversation, like started like identifying as a survivor um, and even acknowledging that what happened to me was assault in 2017. The winter before that in December, 2016, I went on my first backpacking trip. And this was, you know, almost five years ago now at the time I hadn't talked about the assault with anybody. Um, I was, I had gained a bunch of weight, both from the coping mechanisms that I used and then held on to when they were no longer necessary, important distinction to make there. Thank you. And as a result of the assault, and also, um, there was a four year period of my life where 23 of my friends died. So leading Mm. up to that first backpacking trip it was a doozy. Um, so this was 2016 before the assault, before anything else, uh, or before I started talking about the assault. And when I walked across that, I almost, it was the trans Catalina trail. Um, it's a 38.5 mile trail that goes from tip to tip of Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Los Angeles, California. And I attempted that trail the first time in 2016. And this was about 60 pounds ago for me. I've lost a lot of weight since then. Um, and that comes as part of the story, but I, it was the first time where I wasn't worried about client emails. I wasn't, you know, connected to my work. I wasn't on deadline for an assignment. I wasn't worried about facilitating meetings or anything like that. Like it was just me, no technology, no nothing, just me in the outdoors. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done physically. I was wildly ill-prepared. A friend of mine describes it as delusional confidence is what I went to that trail (laughs) with. I was like, I like, I had no experience backpacking whatsoever. My husband grew up in New Hampshire. I grew up in Kansas. We moved to California. We do some day hikes. He's like, Hey, we should go backpacking. I was like, cool, let's do it. Hardest thing I've ever done. Had no idea what I was doing. But on that trip, I learned that even though I didn't recognize the body I was living in, I loved my body. And Mm. I had not been able to say that. I don't think ever in my life leading up to that point, certainly not since the assault, because my body did not feel like a safe place to be. Mm-hmm. but I went on that first trip and I didn't finish the trip because I was in so much pain that I couldn't finish the hike. But I, I got 25 miles into a 38.5 mile trip 
And I was like, I love this. This is so like, this is hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done physically, mentally, emotionally, but I love it. And so I want to do more of it. And so then my brain just kind of switched on. I was like, now I'm an outdoor goddess. Okay, cool. What do I need to do to like align my life to that? And so the first thing I did was like, I got a paddleboard in 2017. And this was like right around the time that I was talking about the assault. We were paddleboarding every day. And then we went out for a paddleboarding trip and Labor Day weekend, 2017. So like I've talked about the assault. Now I'm living my best outdoorsy life. It's too hot to hike in San Diego in the summer. So that's why we're paddleboarding. So we're paddleboarding and I went out uh, Labor Day weekend. It was like a three or four hour paddle trip. It was like, I don't know if you've ever been to San Diego, but it's like 72 mm-hmm. and sunny all the time, except for this weekend. It was like 9,000% humidity in the nineties. Like it felt like mm-hmm. Florida or Houston or just like oppressive humidity hot. And I was like, definitely dehydrated. I thought maybe I had heat stroke or something. I just wasn't feeling right for a couple of weeks after that trip. And so finally, like I woke up it was, uh like middle of September, 2017, And it felt like somebody had taken a corset, wrapped it around my intestines and was just like cinching it down. And I was like, this is the worst pain I've ever been in, in my life. I cannot take it anymore. Let's go to the hospital. And so we ran some tests. I went home. They gave me like some, uh, stuff so I could like do stool samples for three days to make sure it wasn't a a virus or a parasite or something. And then I went back and they told me that I have type two diabetes. And I was like, what? And I was, I mean, like, Okay. And then I started looking at my life because my doctor made diabetes management really easy to understand and divided it up into four boxes. And she was like, okay, it all comes down to this. There's lots of things that affect blood sugar levels in the body. Here's the four main categories, food, exercise, medicine, stress. I was like, okay, cool. So I stopped eating like a 12 year old boy. I was like, all right, no more frozen pizza, no more Ben and Jerry's for breakfast. I'm going to eat more vegetables. I'm going to do it. And then I started walking every day. In addition to the paddle boarding, started taking my medications as prescribed. And it was that last box was a stress. And so this is where everything starts to come together for me. Like I just got diagnosed with a chronic illness. Why? What's happening? So I try to, I like, I do all the things. I start losing weight. I didn't get to the stress point until about like, that's when I started, I started looking at my stress when eating right, taking my medicine and walking every day was helping me lose weight, but wasn't influencing my blood sugar levels. And then I was like, okay, I'm stressed out. Where's it coming from? And it was coming from my career. So I am like this onion, just like peeling back all these layers. I'm like, okay, in the context of diabetes, now I know that I am stressed beyond belief. The stress is coming from my career. What are the steps I can take to manage this? And so I tried to switch accounts. I tried to get a new job. Like I left my corporate, super cushy, wonderful, oh my God, platinum health insurance benefits job, making tons of money to join my friend's startup with the hope that even though I wouldn't have benefits and even though I take a pay cut, the work that I would be doing would be rooted in women's empowerment and social justice, which are two things I really care about. So can I go and do this and reduce my stress and then be like a happy, healthy, diabetic person? No, I can't. Joining a startup is not a stress reducer. And like, I knew that if you've watched any, like if you watch Shark Tank or anything like that, like my first job as chief marketing officer of this small, little, beautiful, quickly growing company was to raise a million dollars. And I was like, I've never done this, but I've watched Shark Tank and I'm scrappy, so I'll figure it out. I couldn't get my stress <laughs> under control, so I left that job too. So now I have quit two jobs in the span of five months. I am a newly diagnosed diabetic who now is not making any money, has no healthcare benefits, and my husband was working part-time at the time. We're not trust fund babies. We don't have this like tuffet of cash we're sitting on. Like I have nothing saved up. 
all I did when I went from like making nothing to making lots of money was just increase my lifestyle with salary. Like I didn't put any of it away. I was not financially responsible. So I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I had booked another trek across that Island when I was still employed. And I was like, either this is going to be the best reset button I need. And I'm going to go back to work, happy, healthy, not biting off my business partner's head, or I'm not going to make it that long. And I'm going to quit. And then I'll have the rest of my life up in front of me. Like, we'll just see how it goes. Went with door number two, quit my job. So then I'm training for the Trans Catalina Trail again. I'm on the top of this mountain outside of San Diego. And this is like the first uh, lesson that nature taught me, right? So I go pick this hike. It's called Stonewall Peak. It's outside of San Diego. At the top of it, it promises 360 degree views of San Diego County. Like you can see from Mexico up to North County. You can see the entire coast. Stunning. I get up there. It's socked in. Not a view to be had normally that would make me upset, but I'm up here and I'm like, okay, I just quit two jobs in the span of five months. I don't have health insurance. I have no money making. I, or there's no way that I'm making money right now. Like there's nothing lined up. I've always had another job before I quit the last one. What am I doing? And why am I not freaking out? Like I am so chill. I should be losing it. And I was like, well, what did I used to do when I was stressed? I used to eat and drink my feelings. Oh, thanks to the diabetes diagnosis. Now I'm not eating and drinking my feelings because I can't keep having a bottle of wine to myself every night. I can't keep eating ice cream for breakfast when I need comfort if I want to be a good diabetes patient. So I'm hiking my feelings. Cool. So it started as just like this recognition of coping mechanisms just kind of fading away in the light of a chronic disease diagnosis without understanding where they came from or why I was doing that. So I was like, okay, eating and drinking my feelings. Like we, we like there, those are phrases that we use because we talk about it as if it's funny. We're like, mm-hmm. it's culture. Like the first, one of the first things I learned as a young girl was like, did he break your heart girl? Go get some ice cream, right? Like here's a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Here's a candle, go take a bath and like eat your feelings. Like I, I was bred to do this. Like I, like the second I right. felt any kind of unpleasant or uncomfortable emotion, I was given something to medicate with. And it was usually ice cream. And then when I got older, it was a bottle of wine. So like life was good. And I realized I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm hiking my feelings. That's cool. But why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? So I have this like container of hiking my feelings. I'm exploring what that means for me. And I have this, like these niggling questions in the back of my brain was like, why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? So now I go across this Island and I'm hiking across it for the second time now. And I found my answer, like at each stage along this journey, like the first place. And I, so like one, it's a, it's a hike I've already done. So I'm returning to the scene of a life-changing journey for round two. So like, I'm already like, I'm comparing what happened from this section of the trail first time to this one. So the first time I got a blister a quarter mile into this journey, I got a quarter, I got a quarter mile into the second journey. And I was like, Hey, Barry, that's my husband. I was like, Barry, I don't have a blister. He's like, we're a quarter mile in. I would hope that you wouldn't. And I was like, yeah, but like last time, this is where I had my blister. And he's like, oh my God, good for you. And I was like, yeah, good for me. (laughs) And so like, it's just like, it's like hiking is such a beautiful metaphor for life. And to do the same trail and have two life-changing experiences on it was just absolutely legendary. So 
I go across this island. I'm having all these beautiful realizations. I was like, oh my God, remember last time I learned that I like, I, I love my body. Look at what it's been capable of and look at how, how well I've been treating it since I was diagnosed with diabetes. Like my body is the temple. I'm treating it the way it deserves to be treated. And then I was thinking, I was like, so why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? And so I'm like hiking up this mountain and I'm doing this exercise where like, I have this negative soundtrack in my head and I say the thing that's negative out loud. And then like, I visualize it floating away. And then inevitably it comes back because these are patterns that I've held for freaking ever. And then I'm like, no, 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 I'm my best friend. I'm not going to talk to myself like that anymore. Let's prove to my inner self and my inner critic, why that thing that has been like reverberating around my brain, why that's not true. So like, I was like my own hype girl going up this mountain and I get to the top and I just like throw my arms up at the top of this hill. And I was just like, (sighs) like I felt on fire in the best way. Like my whole body was just like tingling with excitement. I felt like every, like I even just recounting it, like nobody can see this, but we're recording on zoom. Like I have Mm -hmm. all the hairs on my arm, just sticking straight up, just remembering this moment. I was like, when was the last time I feel this good? Like this feeling is familiar, but it's different this time. Like when was the last time I felt that good? And so now I'm going down the mountain and I'm like, why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? When was the last time I felt this good? And I'm like, it's this really steep section and it's really loose, like gravelly terrain. So you have to watch your footing. And I had my trekking poles and I'm like kind of sidestepping because it's so steep. And I was like, okay, uh, I'm not going to fall down this mountain because my foot started to slip. I was like, today is not the day. Get it together. Williams. Let's go. And so I took a deep breath and I centered myself. And then like a universal two by four smacked me across the face. God's hand himself, whatever you believe in, like touched me and was like, the last time you felt this good was before you were raped 12 years ago. And I was like, oh my God. So that's why I started. That's when the eating and drinking my feelings started was a coping mechanism because I didn't feel safe to tell anybody. And it was just this whole beautiful thing. So I have this second life-changing experience on this island. Now I've opened Pandora's box. Like I've talked about the assault. I have a chronic illness and now I understand how they're connected. And I was like, Oh my God, what else is possible? Nature is the best. And none of this would have been possible if I was sitting at home, listening to podcasts, listening to the radio, watching movies, numbing out in whatever healthy or unhealthy way I felt like doing it. Like I had to be out in the middle of nature at that point, four days into a six day trip, going up the hardest section of the island (laughs) in my body, physical pain. And like, that's when I could understand and like hear my inner voice and that guidance that we miss so easily when we numb. And so I was like, okay. So I get off the Island and I send the me- a message to the Catalina Island Conservancy. I was like, listen, I have had two life-changing opportunities to hike across this Island. Why is this trail not more well-known? Like, how can I help you get the word out? Are you trying to keep it a secret or do you want people to recreate here? Because like this Island is magic. Let me help you. And so they hooked me up with some, uh, with the head of outdoor programming at REI. I ended up like telling them my whole story about all the things that I experienced on the island. And they're like, well, if you'd like to tell your story, we'd like to send you on a speaking tour around Southern California. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And they're <laughs> like, yeah, what do you like? What do you need for audiovisual? And I was like, this is not a presentation. I am a woman who just got done hiking 11 days ago and is telling the story of the things that happened. This is not a presentation yet, but fake it till you make it, Sydney. You've been doing it your whole life. Here we go. So for presentations, like if you want me to stand up here, 
and talk about the trail and how hard it is. Like, give me a map. I'll point out the elevation changes. But if you want the whole story, the one I just shared, I've got some really great pictures of me on the island looking like a nature goddess at the top of that mountain. Like, I'd love to share them and tell the story. Like, no, no, we want the whole story. I was like, even the rapey bits. And they were like, yeah, if you're willing to tell it, nobody's going to come here to have you read them a map. But if you tell them how that island and that trail changed your life, they're going to pay attention. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm in. And they're like, we can't pay you. I was like, doesn't matter. I got credit cards. I'll figure it out. It's fine. <laughs> Not the smartest strategy for like starting anything, but that's how I went. Cause that's what I had. And so now that was June and July. I was going on this massive cruise with my father three weeks through Norway. I was going to go hike in the fjords. We we're going to be on this luxury cruise line. He's a travel writer and a photojournalist. And he invited me to come. And I was like, this is so perfect. I just uncovered like the biggest morsel of goodness in my life. Like, why did all these things happen? This is why my life has unfolded the way it has. I can't wait to share this with my family. So I tell them and I'm like, I connected the dots, by the way, uh, this thing happened years ago, but I figured out why everything's been weird since it happened. Can't wait to tell you. So like my dad's a writer, I'm a writer. I wrote about my assault. Like I, every memory that I ever had, I wrote it at, like I typed it out on the flight from San Diego to Orlando. And I just sobbed on my airplane seat. I was just like poor person next to me. I am like full waterfall. I was questioning whether or not I got Apple care for my computer. Cause there was so much moisture dropping from my <laughs> face onto the keyboard. I thought I might actually cause damage. And I, but it was so cathartic. And my father was the one when I was young, he was, he like handed me a journal. He's like, this works for me right to process. You're going to be good at it. And I was like, okay, that's what I do now. And so I was like, oh my God, dad gave me my first journal. This is a really big moment in my life. Like I didn't tell him when it happened, but like, you know, whatever I can tell him about it now. And I can talk about how writing about it was this beautiful thing. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't get that gift from him. So like I have, see my childhood. I'm like, I already mm-hmm. have the preloaded story as to why I feel like it's okay for me to tell my father about my assault 12 years after it happens. So I write about it. We get on the ship things are weird. Like he's treating me like, and we haven't seen each other in a while. Um, he's treating me like I am his 16 year old daughter who like had a couple drinks at the bonfire after the football game and like came home and, you know, like got sick or something. Like I am not a child. (laughs) I am a grown ass woman with her own life. And I, I was like, I would love to introduce you to 33 year old Sydney because We've got like a 18 ish year history of being roommates where you were also my father, but like I've lived several lifetimes since I left the house. Let's mm-hmm. reintroduce ourselves to each other. Let's redefine our relationship. So he's like, sound great. Sounds good. So we sit down, we have a conversation. I tell him about, I was like, dude, I wrote about my assault for the first time. It was so hard, but it was so beautiful. And I told him the whole story. And like, I just asked for the floor. Cause like, we're both very passionate communicators. Uh, and we have a tendency to talk over each other. So I was like, Hey, let's do as like, let's do each other a solid. I got like loads of stuff. I want to say, like, just let me get it out. Cause that's how I process. And then when I'm done, I'll be like, and seen, and then we can ask questions and like elaborate. But like, I just, I got to get these words out. Otherwise we're just gonna be doing this the whole time. The second that I paused long enough for him to freak out. So I, I tell him my story and I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, I just let it out. I just told my dad, it's gonna be great. And he's like, your story is bullshit. You better come up with a new one by the time you're getting home because nobody's buying the one you're telling. And I was like, wow. Oh, and this is where my hindsight goggles came on. I was like, thank God I didn't tell anybody Mm -hmm. when it happened because the first person I would have told was my dad, who was my best friend. And that's a 
complicated relationship looking back that my dad was my, like my literal best friend, not just like in the cutesy way the daughters say that my dad was my best friend. And if I had told him that after it happened and that was his reaction, I would not be here on this podcast. I can tell you that for sure right now. Mm -hmm. Like there is no part of me that would have been able to survive that, not in that state, not at that age and not with that, the level of experience that I had. I did not, Mm -hmm. I did not know how to do it. And so the rest of the trip was difficult, but I, I pushed that down. Like I didn't realize what a big deal that was until my first speaking stop. So I do like, I talked to the folks at REI in 2018 in June, I go on this trip in 2019. Then I, and I'm like, so this is what I'm doing. My husband and I are going to go, we're going to go drive around the country. We're going to move into a van. We're going to drive around the country. I'm going to tell my story. We're going to take people out hiking. Like that's the new plan. That's what hiking my feelings is. And my parents are like, what? And I was like, yeah, like I'm telling my story. So get excited. It's going to be great. So I had a friend record my first one because I wanted to have like, this is my first time ever telling my story. Like one, I want it on tape. And two, I want to see the improvement because now I've committed to sharing this story with anybody that will listen because it was language around somebody else's experience that helped me survive the aftermath of mine. So if I can offer that to anybody else, that is my current purpose on this planet at this point in time. So I was like, I'm going to go tell anybody that'll listen this story. So I have it recorded and I, my family was in Florida. I live in California. So I was like, I sent him a link and I was like, Hey, this is my talk. I'm going out for round two tonight. Just wanted to share this with you guys. Thanks for everything. Like at this point we weren't, there was no, like I, the thing that my dad said is still like, that's messed up, but there wasn't any like other weirdness until I did my first talk. And as I was doing it, I realized like, oh yeah, this is why I didn't tell my dad. So I have this little scar on my hand and it's super thin and you can't really see it, but I got it because I used to be obsessed with Beanie Babies and I was cutting open a box of Irish spring soap because I wanted the box to be like a trough where my Beanie Babies could feed as one does. So I'm like, I I get, so I get it. I go into my dad's uh, van. He worked for the Kansas city star. He like threw newspapers. Um, He's got box cutters in his van. Like that's how we cut open the bundles of newspapers at night. And so I like went into the van, got the box cutters. I'm holding this thing in my hand. I cut off the top and it slices my hand open. And I was like, "Uh Oh, I'm in trouble. And so like, I got paper towels on it. I got a bandaid on it. My sister was there. I was like, Whitney, you cannot tell anyone. I'm going to get in so much trouble. Like I knew I was going to get yelled at one. Cause I went in dad's van Two, I'm playing with something sharp and three, I cut myself. Like none of those things are okay. Looking back, if you get a cut, you go to your parents, they give you a bandaid. That's the mm-hmm. healthy interaction. But in my mind, either I knew that that wasn't safe or I conjured up in my head with the limited brain capacity that I had at nine to understand that like, this is something that's not worth getting in trouble over. I can handle this myself. So I have this, like that connection is happening real time while I'm trying to articulate part of my story on this first speaking tour. So like there's this 45, 30, 45 second gap between, like I read this big long list of all those things that I was working through that go around in my head, all the negative stuff. So I read a long list of everything I process. And then the last thing on the list is what my dad said about my story being BS. And that line was so hard to say for other people. Cause that was the first time I was saying it out loud for anybody else to hear other than me and my husband recounting that story. 
And so I was just like, I, like I steadied myself and I just got like super grounded and I was just like taking deep breaths trying to get this line out of my body. Meanwhile, processing like this little scar in my hand where I'm holding this list of things that I'm reading. I see the scar and I'm like, oh, no no wonder I didn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell anybody about like physically cutting my hand. No wonder I didn't tell anybody about my assault coupled with the reaction that I got from my father when I did tell him 12 years later, like mind blown. Mm -hmm. And so I write about that experience, like connecting the dots on how my nine-year-old brain took this cut on my hand, translated it to my experience with sexual assault. And now as a 33-year-old woman, I'm observing all these different things about my life and how they all came to be. In our family group chat, my mom posts a screenshot of that post. And she's like, is it possible that you're telling your story a little bit differently now that you have people that are listening? And then my sister asked me if I could take that post down because she didn't want my dad to commit suicide after reading it. And then my father told me that he said, because that was a conversation that we had on the ship about how my story is BS. And I referenced that conversation. He's like, you're fabricating your childhood so you can remain competitive as a motivational speaker. And if that's the route you want to go, I'm not going to stop you. But as far as the conversation goes on the ship, I recorded that conversation. You can move along now. So either my dad recorded the most intimate conversation that we've ever had in which I tell him about my assault for the first time. And now he's wanting, and he's done that without my consent. And now he's using that against me, even though like, I'm not, I was like, if, if I misquoted you, please send me the recording and I'll adjust my presentation. Like those mm-hmm. are the words that I heard. If that's not true, I don't want to misrepresent what happened there. So let me know. So either you recorded it without my consent or you're lying about it to try to hurt me neither of which is okay by me. And that's the story of how my first boundary that I ever established in my entire life was established with the people that raised me and my sister. Like I had no idea that this journey would lead to me understanding what boundaries are. Cause like, we clearly didn't have any as a family. I didn't know that this journey would result in me not speaking with my family for almost three years now, like didn't plan on that being part of the gig, but on the flip side of the stuff that's been really hard about healing and understanding how we get through this is the most beautiful life I've ever lived. Like I wrote a book about it. I've driven around the country twice with my husband who loves me and who is the entire reason that I am even able to talk about this because he was the one that saw an opportunity to support his wife. He didn't know if that had been a thing for me, but he's Mm -hmm. a good stand-up guy and wanted to let me know that I had the floor if something like that had happened to me. Like There is nothing in my life right now that isn't amazing. And all of the amazing things are as a result of talking about the worst day of my life. And that's really hard to reconcile with sometimes. Cause I had dreams of being like a head and neck surgeon. I was going to go be a cancer doctor. I wanted to like change the way medicine was done, but I got assaulted in between like when I was in community college and I was taking chem 101 and I failed chemistry 101. And I thought it was because I was stupid. When it's abundantly clear now, again, hindsight goggles, I'm not stupid. I'm a brilliant woman. I am super smart. I got grades because they were demanded of me and they were good, but like, I'm also a smart person. And the only reason that I was failing chemistry 101 is because the trauma was distracting me from my studies. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea. I just thought I just couldn't pay attention in class. I thought maybe I just all of a sudden sucked at being a student, but it was the trauma that kept me from doing well in that course of study. And I might not be a doctor. I might not have ever gone to med school. I 
since I started all this, people ask me if I'm a therapist. I'm not one of those either, but I'm a lady with some stories and some trips and tricks that have helped me. And I just, I want to share that with anybody I can. Cause if that's, if that prevents one more survivor from taking their own life, mm-hmm. even better, if that gives one more survivor language to articulate what happened to them so they can start their healing journey, I'm in like, that is all I want for the rest of this time on this planet is to help as many people as I possibly can move through this in a way that feels good to them. Because to our original point, one of the first ones we made, there is no right or wrong way to do it. There's only the way that you choose how, and that can look like a million different things. Hell yes to all the things. All <laughs> and of that them. was a lot. Like I went, I went, like I'm going hiking all the way to recovery. So like, I know I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, let's just blanket. Hell yes, because that was pretty much my response to everything. Like yes. Um, <laughs> And, and I think it's, it's such a powerful story of reclaiming. And I think there's something that you're demonstrating, but not necessarily speaking exactly to, which is the power that you had around knowing yourself. And I'm curious, cause there's part of me that wonders if that kind of came in during that moment when you realized that you loved your body. Um, and maybe that's the therapist in me that's like trying to connect some dots because there's this, you know, the moment with your dad, that devastation that was there for anyone could have really put them back into their cave, could have derailed this whole thing, you know, but then following that up with the reaction of your family full on doing, doing what family systems, unfortunately do protect the person who is wreaking a lot of havoc and silence the the one person who's like breaking out of it and possibly actually offering some constructive change and and then like that compounding experience could have also led to silencing like we're done I'm back to like living this like pressed down life and what you speak to is actually like your response to this being like those hindsight goggles but it's also just like this like really really powerful sense of self of being able to see that and be like yeah that's not mine Like him saying my story is bullshit was never mine. And my whole family coming at me and telling me that I need to either stop talking or that I'm full on lying or threatening me. (laughs) I'm living for your recounting of this because I'm like, I've talked about it with my therapist, but to have another person with that kind of education, like recounting all the parts that are bad and why I'm like, okay, good. So I'm, I'm still validated in my choices and my journey. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think what you're showing is actually like this remarkable quality of yours that you're, all this is happening and you're still able to be like, yeah, that's not, that's not mine either. I'm still, I'm not only still going to do what I do. I'm actually going to respond to that with a boundary and say like, actually, like, I'm not going to let your sludge kind of creep over into my life. And I'm not going to let you continue to try to interfere with me living my life. And that's such a, I, I think there's, there's so much power to that certainty you had, whether, and that's where I'm wondering if like that moment of like, I truly love my body, because it seems like that was like a watershed moment of like everything really opening up from, from there. Um, and this radical acceptance that you offered yourself, radical self-acceptance, radical compassion, like, you know, everything that kind of came out of that, like the, the guilt, the shame just dissolved, like 
with meeting that kind of love that you had for yourself and really prepared you then for when your family responded in that way to not have it destroy your life the way that it was probably intended to do. Well, and I think, I mean, yes, I think that when I look back and I, and that's something like when I first started, like in 2019, when I was going around the country telling the story, that story was like, that experience was still so fresh, right? Like I had just had this experience on the Island. So like, as I have time and distance and as I have more experience, and now that I started therapy this year, like all, all of my healing up until February of this year was journaling, reading books, listening to music, drinking and eating when I needed to, like, it was all just like this self-guided journey. And then I had a, a encounter in February that I was just like, I need therapy now. Like, it was just like, I was ready. I had the resources because prior at prior times in my life, when I could afford it, I didn't like the stigma of it. When I didn't mm-hmm. like when I needed it, I didn't have access. And so I was at the right place at the right time where I was like time for therapy. This is something bigger and bigger and badder beyond me. So I've been like thinking about like, when was the starting point? Cause like the story initially was like, I did this hike and this is what happened. I think the, 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 the coming to terms with at the time, like on 2016, on that hike, I said, I love my body. That was what felt true to me in the moment. But what looking back hindsight goggles, again, what was actually happening was acceptance of and curiosity around the body I was living in at that time, because I had known where I had been. I knew that I was uncomfortable, but I also had this like shriveling, like little tiny, this tiniest sliver, the tiniest little thread of hope that I found something where I felt comfortable in my body, regardless of what it looked like. And that I wanted to do more of, and I didn't want my body to be the thing that got in the way of that. And so to have this context where like anything other than hating your body can feel like love in that moment. And in that moment in 2016, I was like, I love my body. And it's like, did I really love it? Like I had the language to say, I loved it. Did I have that deep internal knowing? Like I am who I am and this, you can't mess with me. No, I didn't, but I had enough language to be like, I love my body. And you repeat it enough to yourself. Like you start to actually think, well, maybe I could. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was this year where I realized like just feeling comfortable in my body and wanting to make a change for myself that wasn't rooted in some vanity metric. Like I was overweight. I bought like in advance of that trip, I bought the biggest pair of pants I've ever bought. I bought the biggest shirt I've ever bought. I felt incredibly uncomfortable. I looked at myself in the dressing room and I was just like, how did we get here? Like not from a punishment perspective, but just genuine curiosity. Like, how did we get here? Like, how am I wearing this size? And at the beginning, it was so much about my actual physical body. And I was like, it's bigger. Why is it bigger? I'm curious. Like I'm working out, I'm eating right. Why is nothing happening? And it was that second trip and the diabetes diagnosis where I started to understand and connect the dots. Like this trauma happened. These are the behaviors that I did that informed what is happening in my mind and body. I was having panic attacks, like all the time. I was having horrible flashbacks of that night and trying to avoid that at all costs. And some of the behaviors and some of the stress I was putting myself through when I couldn't find value in myself, my first and easiest way to find value was overcommitting at work. Because if I was part of a team and indispensable, then I felt valuable, but I couldn't give that to myself. So like, it's all this, like, it's just everything coming together. And I think to the point of the question about how did you not let this, like, these are moments where anybody could like slip back and be like, oh my God, I'm so screwed. 
how did you not? And I think because this is it mine, that was the whole process I was going through across this island. Because what I realized was as I was processing these things that I couldn't process through numbing, that I couldn't process through punishing myself, that I couldn't process through any other healing opportunity I had taken advantage of leading up to that point. None of that was possible in those environments, but it was possible on this island. And every time I, I, I like let go of something, or I just sobbed on the trail and let it all out. I felt physically lighter in my body. Like there were three distinct moments on this trail. I was sitting on a swing set, having just cried about all my friends that had passed away. And I felt like weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And the metaphor I use in my book is called my trauma pack. And what I was undoing was unpacking it. So like at the top is like, yeah, I got some body image stuff. Okay. Is this mine? Like, where did I learn to hate my body? Oh, when my mom told me I better watch what I eat or else I'll end up looking like her because she was overweight. And that's the worst offense we can commit as women in America is to be overweight because that's mm-hmm. the worst thing. Never mind all the criminal shit that happens, especially to women that are survivors. Being fat's the worst. Okay, right. that's cool. Is this mine? That's not mine. Toss it. Okay, uh, all my fr- dead friends. Like, I'm never gonna not carry this with me, but I took out the heavy part and replaced it with all the positivity the memories that I want to keep alive for them, their legacy, their favorite joke. That one time we were in the car and like, you know, like the, the movie, mind movie that you hear mm-hmm. when you think about everybody that's passed, like that was what I was putting in my backpack. So this whole time I'm like, these beliefs, like all the negative stuff I used to say to myself, I was like, is this mine? No. Okay. Where'd it come from? Okay. Would I allow myself to talk to myself that way? No. Cool. Then bye. The only reason that I think I survived both the conversation with my father and then all of the things that happened around my recounting of the conversation was because it was so fresh. Like Mm. I had been doing different bits and pieces of that, like in different courses and in different journaling things and like different books that I read and meditations that I've done. It was just like everything that I had ever tried partnered with curiosity, partnered with the healing power of nature where there's no other distractions. I'm only reconnecting with myself. It was like the perfect storm of understanding and grace and compassion, empowerment and strength. Like nothing at that point, I I was what my dear friend, DJ Lord calls unfuckwithable. You could not, you could not knock me down. And looking back on how I established the boundary, would I have liked for that to have gone differently? hundred percent. Yes. I would have loved for it to be a civilized conversation that was like, hi, parents who I used to, who I love so much, like, da, 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 da. but like th- that just wasn't possible. All of the, all of the analysis of my post in my life was happening in a group text. I mm. asked if we could get on the phone. And my dad was like, uh, I'm not going to start my week wasting time on Monday, doing something that I can't control and good luck getting people on the phone on a Monday. And I was like, so this is it. Like you can't be bothered to have a conversation around what's happening here. So like I established a boundary via email to which nobody responded. Like Mm -hmm. in the story of my life, that's not how I would have written that chapter, but like it is what it is. And it is every time I think about like just yesterday, yesterday was my mom's birthday. I had therapy yesterday. I was like, I just miss my mom. Like I really, I just want my mom. That's all I want. And my therapist was like, well, what would you say to her? if you called her, I was like, well, I guess I'd say happy birthday. But like, after almost three years of not talking, like, how would that go? Like they would ask what I want or who died. And then I would be disappointed. And I would like, it would be reinforced that establishing a boundary was a good choice. And like, that's the mental gymnastics I go through every time I think about reaching back out to them, because like, it's natural for me to want my parents to be part 
of the best chapter of my life. Mm -hmm. But every time I think about reaching out to them, it's like, well, what do I actually want? I'm still reaching out because I want them to validate it. I want them to be proud of me. I want them to see me. And the reality Mm -hmm. is they can't. And it sucks to be the cycle breaker. Like it's so hard. Yeah. Yes. (sighs) Sending just a moment of pause, sending love out to all the cycle breakers. It is a very tough road, especially to be doing that in addition to a recovery journey and recovery journeys have a tendency to pull that stuff up. You know, as we kind of get to the close here, you wanted to talk a little bit about your program and share that with everybody. So can you tell us a little bit about what you offer to survivors um, through your program? Yeah. So we are, so Hiking My Feelings has over the last three years, we've done a lot. Um, mostly because we started in late 2018, had a wonderful time in 2019 touring the country, sharing the story of how hiking helped me heal my mind and body, and then inviting people to join us on the trail. And then I wrote a book and then 2020 happened. So like everything that we planned to do in 2020, the workshops, the retreats, all this stuff that was being born out of the book that I wrote, just kind of, I was like, what do we do? Like we're doing, we were doing so good at having, you know, like we were getting people off their devices and out in the wilderness and healing. And now we're like, you can't go in the wilderness. And if you can, you can't come with us. So like, let's get on zoom. Like it just, it was so, it was really hard to wrap my head around, like how to just completely do a 180 after less than a year of doing this. And I was like, okay. Uh, I was just like crying and I was like, how do we get through it? So all the workshops that I had planned to do in 2020 on the road, we combined into an online program. It's 12 weeks long. And we call it Blaze Your Own Trail to Self-Love in that speaking to the point that we've kind of made a couple of times now, like there is no right or wrong way to do this. I am not a therapist. I am not a doctor. I'm not a counselor. I, I am not certified in anything. I don't have any letters after my name except for like BA, but I don't think people put bachelor's degrees behind their name. Um, so what I am and what I do is I create a beautiful judgment-free space with my husband. I recreate what he gave me on that couch, essentially, is what we're doing. Like, we're going to watch The Bachelor. We're going to pause. We're going to be like, everybody good? You guys got stories? No? Okay, cool. Keep going. So each week through our 12-week program, this starts uh, February 13th. So it's like the day before Valentine's Day, self-love day, hey. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So each week we have what we call a family meeting where we have a worksheet and a guided activity that's going to help you discover some part of yourself or help you understand a little bit more about your healing journey. We're not telling you how to heal. We're not telling you where to heal. We're not telling you like how long it should take, but each week we introduce an activity that can help you along this journey, whether you're ready for it that week, or you use it in 10 years, or you use it never totally up to you again, not prescriptive, just creating an environment where healing is possible. So we have these meetings that we call family meetings. Everybody in the program gets on. We reflect on what happened last week. I present the material for this week. And then we have smaller groups called summit circles where you have an accountability buddy or a couple buddies where they're your support person throughout the entire program. Like you can be on their group chat. You can set up your own zoom calls every week just to kind of check in with each other. And then we have, um, what we call trail thoughts, which is our way of introducing hiking as a moving meditation. So in a regular meditation where you're doing something guided and they tell you to return to your breath, if your brain starts to get squirrely, we give you a thought and a mantra to think about and, or repeat to yourself or return to while you're hiking. So it gives you a chance to kind of like let your brain go squirrely and then like recenter around a theme of the week's material. And so we have playlists, we have resources, we've got meditations. Like it's just, it's a really nice way to heal in community because like I mentioned earlier, 
everything that I had done healing wise was solo and there's no wrong way to go about it. But when I realized that solo was no longer the journey for me, community was where it was at. And I didn't have, I didn't have the luxury of like being okay, talking about being a survivor, finding a support group, and then going through it that way. I was like, I am going through this, then I'm getting diagnosed with a chronic illness. Then I need to figure out how to manage this disease. Okay. I'm starting my own thing. Don't know what it is. And now it's time to build it. Like there was no pocket in there where a survivor specific support group was available to me or that I was aware of any. So I just kind of created like the kind of group I'd want to be with, like, let's go hiking and talk about some stuff. Like, Mm. and we initially had to offer that virtually. And so we still offer the program virtually, but where it all comes together is in our retreats. And so we have Blaze Your Own Trail to Self-Love, which is our 12 week program. It's like the foundational excellence that is everything we do at Hiking My Feelings. Hiking is a moving meditation, guided self-discovery, radical responsibility for the stuff that we've been through. And if it's happened to us and somebody else like did the, did the bad things, let that go. But where we can take responsibility, let's do that because with responsibility comes empowerment. And when Mm -hmm. we can get really clear on what's happened to us, why it happened, what we want and why we want it, then the how and the who, how it all comes together, who's going to help you on that journey. Those things just kind of magically unfold. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I can. I mean, just even hearing you talk about this, I can pick up on all of the passion and the energy that this this experience has for people. Where can where can they get in touch to be able to learn more about that? So for all things hiking my feelings, hikingmyfeelings.org is a great place to start. From there, you can learn about our retreats, our programs, my book, um, upcoming events, upcoming workshops, stuff like that. And there's one thing that I want to say before we go. There's like self-care as much as sexual assault are both things that have been talked about a lot in current culture. And with the talk around self-care comes this trope that self-care is selfish. If there's one thing I can leave behind on this planet, regardless of how many books I write, regardless of how well they sell, regardless of these programs or how many people they touch, the single act of me taking responsibility for my healing and embarking on this journey in community is why everything that exists in my life today exists. And there is no part of that that's selfish. Like we were wrapping up this retreat we did in October. And as I was coming down the mountain with this group we were hiking with, I was like, guys, I wouldn't know you if I didn't try to heal me. So the work we do at Hiking My Feelings, the work every single survivor listening, when you go to heal, regardless of what that looks like. You might write a book. You might start an organization. You might not ever do anything like that. You might just keep working the same job you've ever had. That's irrelevant. But deciding to heal that action that you take for yourself, when you start doing that work, you kind of glow a little bit, right? And like you show up, you show up around your friends and family. They're like, and if they're healthy individuals who are not going to like project their insecurities onto you, then they'll be like, Hey girl, what you doing? Like, what's your skincare routine? You're like, no, no, it's not skincare. Like I'll tell you my skincare routine, but also it's this like self-love, this deep healing work that I'm doing. They see that and how it changes for you. They want that for themselves. They embark on their own journey and the ripple effect is just unstoppable. So if hiking my, if the only thing that hiking my feelings is at the end of the day is evidence that my healing journey was one worth it and two changed the world then I'm a happy camper. And that's all I could ever ask for. 
That's so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And we're going to put all of the information and links and stuff as well in the show notes. So if anybody, you know, wants to click on that and explore a little bit more, they can find it there. Thank you so much for being here today and for taking the time and sharing your story and all of your fierce badassery with all of us today. Thank you so much, Kelsey. It's an absolute pleasure. And I love what you're building for the survivor community here. So thanks for having me. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.